During my investigation of corruption in the Texas parole system, which exposed how serial killer Kenneth McDuff got out of prison under a cloud of corruption, I visited almost every maximum security prison in the state over a 10-year period. I saw very little there that would make a difference in a person's life when they came out, to, to have real change. The only program I ever saw that I thought might be working was Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship Program. Then uh, Governor George W. Bush had allowed the program to come in the prisons under objections from the non-faith community. But it was the one thing I saw. And I, I was in a prison one day, and what really struck me is in a day room on one side, the inmates were yelling and screaming watching the NBA finals. And on the other side, they were having Bible study. So this was a program that also involved uh, people from the outside, or what inmates call the free world. There was a time when the Texas prison system was called the Texas Department of Corrections. I never saw much going on in those places that, quote, corrected people. But I'm going to tell you about a program that a friend of mine has been involved in that says that it does bring change. Uh, he calls it from convicts to CEO. And I have the CEO here of the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, Brian Kelly. Brian, thank you for joining us. Robert, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Is rehabilitation possible in prison systems across this country today? Most assuredly, it is possible. I would say it's rare at times, but it's certainly possible. And why so rare? You know, when it really boils down to it, rehabilitation is an inside job. You've got to do that for yourself. No matter what sort of programs, what sort of opportunities are available, until a person is ready to change, no change is going to take place. I've, I've often been asked, is, you know, are people in prison incorrigible? Are they irredeemable? And my answer to that is, you know, everybody is redeemable, but not everybody's ready. And in your program, how do you find out they are, that they are ready? Or do you recruit them? Or how do they find out about you and have determined that I need to change my life? You know, I've got a staff of about 30 employees, 75% of which are ex-felons. They've been uh, inside. They know what it's like. They, We call it they peep game. They understand when people are trying to manipulate and um, and pull the wool over anybody's eyes. And so we, we know we've got a series of questions. We've got an application for our program, and we're looking for commitment to change as witnessed in institutional adjustment, things that they've tried to get involved with on the inside, whether that's Bible study, whether that's education, vocational training, uh, perhaps just a good job, or even just commitment to fitness. Is there something that they're trying to do positive with their time? Well, one of the things I would see is that there, there seemed to be a widespread absence of cognitive skills, of literally how to think, how to know there is cause and effect. If I do this, it might anger somebody. What's your experience? I, I would agree with that completely. I, I've always said that our day rooms uh, across Texas and I expect across the country are filled with men with great creative ideas of how their lives might change. But for the most part, they are delusional solutions. There are cockamamie ideas that are never going to work. They don't understand that, though. They're, they've got this pipe dream, this pie in the sky idea of how, how things are going to unfold. And, and they're just not true. And so 
we bring in folks from the business community, successful businessmen and women who help them think through their ideas and make sure that um, they have somebody that helps them with critical thinking skills. Well, and as you do that, there, there has to be a change in their value system. How do they come to recognize that they do need, there needs to be an interchange? Or when they reach you, have they already made that decision? No, they usually haven't. They're, they're typically not living by a new value system. That's one of the things that we instill at the very onset. So we start out with character assessment and development. And uh, the very first assignment that we give somebody in PEP is write your eulogy if you die today and be honest. Let's take a critical look at what would be said about your life today if you passed away. And, and I want the guys to come to grips with that. And then I want them to see that we can write a different eulogy if you'll prepare and we can help you do that. And so uh, we start instilling character traits that are indicative of successful people, things like accountability, integrity, wise stewardship, love, excellence, execution. And so those are things that we're constantly reinforcing and, and we're also celebrating when they show up. And so we're trying to instill things that successful people typically have in common. Well, and you know of which you speak here because you've been there. And I want the, our listeners to know that sitting across the table from you, you'd pass for any CEO or owner of a major business in this city. But you used to wear that white suit. Dirty white suit. Yes. I did. I did um, almost 22 years in prison um, on a murder charge. I had a life sentence um, under the legislature that I was convicted of. Um, that life sentence was not without parole. There was parole eligibility. Um, I actually came up for parole 13 times and made it that 13th time shortly after um, clearing the 20-year mark. And, and it was interesting, after 12 reviews and being told every time that I'm doing everything just right, keep it up, denied, the 13th time was different. My parole commissioner was telling me what parole was going to be like for me when I got out. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, this guy's telling me I've made parole. And at the end, he said, uh, any questions, Mr. Kelly? I said, yes, sir, I've got one. And he said, what is it? And I said, will you give me parole next year? And he looked at me, he said, I don't understand. Are you asking me to stay in prison for another year? And I said, well, yes, sir. And he said, why would you do that? And I said, I'd like to go through the prison entrepreneurship program and develop a business plan that I've got and, and interact with their, their business uh, folks. The only way I can do that is if you give me a hard release date for next year so I have time to complete the program and I can be housed on that pre-release unit. And he looked at me for what I bet was 60 seconds. He just stared at me, didn't blink. And finally he said, let me look into that. And he gave me exactly what I asked for. I bargained for an extra year in prison to go through the program that I now lead. And what had happened inside of you that you thought you needed that? I, you know, I had been introduced to the Prison Entrepreneurship Program through the founder, uh, Catherine Rohr at the time. And um, she recognized after starting a program and using entrepreneurship as a vehicle for change in the lives of these men, recognizing that from their survival on the street, they know a lot about business. They know about supply chains and risk management, profit margins, marketing, sales, collections. Uh, reading people, recognizing opportunities. 
And she thought she could transform that hustle into something positive. So they're providing opportunities to add value instead of taking advantage of people. Uh, and that's proven to be true. But she recognized she couldn't be in a prison every day. So she recruited some uh, inmate shepherds, if you will, to be um, the day-to-day uh, orchestrators of the program. Uh, and I always got to be one of those for a short number of months. So I, I had been introduced to PEP, and I got to see it behind the curtain. I saw how real it was. And, uh, and I desperately wanted to be a part of it. We were just about to transfer to a different unit, a pre-release unit. And uh, when we did, I wasn't able to go because I had too much time. I couldn't be housed on that unit. So I got to go do about six or seven years in the wilderness or back in the jungle of the regular prison. And so when I, I had that opportunity with parole, I saw that extra year on my time in PP as an investment in my future. It was totally worth it. But it's, you know, it's not fair because I'd seen behind the curtain. I knew what I was getting. So I know you spent some time on the wind unit. It used to be called the wind farm. And for our listeners in, uh, in Texas, there was a time when the prisons were self-sustaining uh, and they raised crops and animals, you name it. Then the inmates worked the fields and they were all called farms. But the wind unit, when I was there, they were refurbishing school buses for school districts, stamped out license plates. There were other programs there, typically not just wind unit or Texas, or, but across the country. Did those kind of work programs contribute to success in getting out of you've learned a skill and they're doing something? You know, I think it it depends, Robert. It depends on how much you really invest yourself into that. Now, I worked at the sign shop at the wind unit for about 12 years. It's part of Texas Correctional Industries. And these are the highway signs. Highway signs. Well, uh, at the Beto unit, they do the highway signs. We were doing the smaller signs, office signs, all the way down to name tags and, and things like that. Yes. I got to do uh, graphic layout and laser engraving. And so I got to channel some creativity in, in a place that's completely gray and dingy white and you know everything's the same. And so I loved that. And I really dove into it and learned some valuable uh, and marketable business skills in doing that. And, and even managed a team of people and, and, and brought them together to, uh, to churn out some product uh, for TCI. And, and I loved it. Uh, but I would say most people in prison don't have a job that they dive into like that and try to learn uh, a skill set that's going to be ap- applicable when they get out. You know, most of them are working in the fields with an oversized hoe uh, that they call an Aggie, or they're working in uh, the chow hall or a laundry, or they're working as a janitor uh, and things like that. And, and I'm not sure that um, those are adequately preparing people for release, but there are jobs on the inside that uh, help prepare people for a, you know, a work set and work skill set. The public does expect uh, these institutions to be punitive, to be severe, you know, you need to pay a price. And I know in some of the stories I did when I would talk about I, the feedback I got, they, people in the public didn't want, want them to have TV, no life comforts. Is that, is it realistic? Is, is the, does the punitive nature destroy any opportunity to change anyone? Is there a balance to be struck? There's got to be a balance struck because if uh, we're sentencing people to decades of misery, um, they're not going to come out better. They're just not. 
And so we've got to do something to invest. They're human beings still. Now, what I've encountered and almost across the board are backgrounds that have almost um, guaranteed that they're going to end up in prison. Typically, they come from uh, a community or a family uh, where prison is prevalent. And I've seen studies that said that 70% of children of at least one incarcerated parent will follow suit and go to prison too. In our 18-year history in our program, uh, with over 3,000 graduates, we only know of one child of a PUP graduate who's followed suit. And so we're breaking that generational cycle, but there's such a negative uh, connotation on the inside that uh, we have got to help prepare them for success. Um, post-release. If we don't, um, we might as well just keep them locked up forever. And I don't think that's in anybody's best interest. 95% of the people who go to prison will one day get out. It's in everybody's best interest that they're able to get out and contribute to society and not be somebody that we're fearful of. And then, you know, there are people f- fearful of them coming out and working for them and that sort of thing. So how do you how do, for your graduates, how do you deal with that? Of Logically, somebody's going to think, oh, you know, they're going to take money from the cash register, or that sort of thing. You know, and sadly, there's a bad track record of that happening. And so we, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that we're instilling character and value and morals. Uh, we need to be able to overcompensate for, uh, I think, what society has concluded will be the case with returning citizens and demonstrate that we're a cut above, that, that we're living a different lifestyle now. Uh, a few years ago, the, uh, the hot button thing was uh, ban the box that that you didn't have to declare that you were a felon on an application to give everybody a chance to at least have a verbal interview. Uh, we were surprisingly uh, quiet on that debate because I really instill in our participants and our graduates to own your past. Don't belabor it. Show how you've grown from it and how that is now going to add value because you take that very seriously and now can um, can demonstrate a trustworthiness in the workplace uh, over and above even Joe Blow. You know, I in my years of reporting there, I came away feeling that, you know, we have the largest prison system in the world. There are people that need to be there that are what I saw with a career violent psychopaths. But it seemed to me to be a, a monument of some kind of failure in our society, in our families, in our educational system. From the, your perspective, what's your view? You know, I've been on several prison units, uh, both as an inmate and as a, uh, a volunteer um, returning, trying to foster hope um, and a new future. And what I find in most of our prisons is just a monument to hopelessness. Um, everybody is stuck in the muck and the mire that they have chosen for their lives, and they don't know the way out. They desperately want out. They just don't know how. And so that's what we try to do with the Prison Entrepreneurship Program is recognize, that, hey, you've got creativity. You've got good ideas. They're probably delusional solutions. Let's bring in a new foundation of values and morals. Let's um, facilitate your ideas into a, a place 
that is a executable plan where um, you know you can do something different with your life with a community surrounding you that will help you think through that and get over the challenges that you're typically going to face and and we found just remarkable successes in our 18 year history our average recidivism rates eight percent so but you're a nonprofit mm-hmm. is this something that's too expensive for an institution? Or there's not, they can't think that way. I, I can't speak for them. Uh, you know, Brian Collier and TDCJ, they, they've got a tough job. Uh, and having seen it from both sides of the fences, uh, uh, it's, it's difficult. Um, all, all I can tell you is uh, we've had a remarkable track record of turning lives around using the vehicle of entrepreneurship. And, and it's interesting, at, at the onset of every class, I, I share with the men that are, are coming into our program and say, uh, you know, from your very survival on the street, you, you know a lot about these business concepts. And, and uh, the definition of an entrepreneur is somebody who recognizes a gap or a problem in society but doesn't see it as a problem. He sees it as an opportunity to make money or make a difference. You guys are natural entrepreneurs. You recognize opportunities. You've just done that to take advantage of people in the past. If we turn that on its head and you can provide a value where you see opportunity, uh, you can shine and be a success in life and be able to look in the mirror and be able to look in your son or daughter's eyes and see the pride uh, in their eyes. Don't you want that? The other thing when I look back on my experiences, in hindsight now, I realize that I met a lot of men with learning differences that went undiagnosed or they didn't deal with it in, in, in school. And I wondered how much that had to do with a lot of them getting there. The ones that was just bad decision making. You know, it's, it's a little bit of both. And I think the overall um, educational level of men in Texas prisons, at least, are, is right around eighth grade educational level. And um, that's not any different for the men who go through prison entrepreneurship program, although we teach at a collegiate level. Uh, even supplemented with graduate um, school uh, case studies, about 50 to 55 percent of our guys will have or be working on a GED. And so the study skill levels of men in prison is as abysmal. We really have to teach them how to learn. And so, you know, the, um, our, there, while there's educational opportunities in prison, and actually I earned a bachelor's degree on the inside, uh, I think we need to do more. Tell me about some of your, your success stories. Do you have graduates that are outrunning their own businesses. Oh, yes. We've had over 600 businesses started by ex-felons who've uh, been released from prison and launched their um, their business idea. Um, probably in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 had revenues or sales over a million dollars last year. Uh, just some amazing stories. Um, a few years ago, we started launching a showcase uh, pitch event. Uh, we're uh, alternating from between Dallas and Houston. The first one was the George Bush Center uh, right here on the SMU campus. And we put three guys on stage pitching for about $250,000 in uh, gross capital. Our winner, Ruben, that night uh, won $100,000. And this was right before COVID. This was November of 19. Um, he just wowed the crowd because he, he went into prison, a young Hispanic male, had never had a job, sold drugs, 
um, encounter PP, uh, embrace the the values and the uh, and uh, and the idea of entrepreneurship. When he got out, he recognized with no job skills, he he decided to go to West Texas to go to the oil fields and try to earn as much as he could with you know just labor as Correct. a as a skill set. And uh, and his boss loved him because of his work ethic, because of his trustworthiness, because of his conscientiousness and loyalty. Uh, to somebody who gave him a chance. Uh, after a few months, they were out servicing an oil well. The truck broke down. And so Ruben called the shop and said, hey, you need to come fix the shop, uh, fix my truck. And the shop said, hey, we're swamped right now. It's going to be five days at best before we can get to it. And he was thinking, I, I need to be working this whole time. So he got on YouTube, learned how to fix the truck himself and did it. And his boss recognized, you have got mechanical aptitude. What if I get you some training? And Ruben's like, I'm all about that, please. And so they did, moved him in the shop. He very quickly moved up to shop foreman. And then the entrepreneur came out in him. He started recognizing gaps in the preventative maintenance uh, and service industry out there. Launched his own business that uh, serviced the trucks that serviced the oil wells. Uh, recognizing that he was going to be even recession-proof in, in oil and gas. Uh, did a million nine first year, 300 net. Um, that night he, he just blew the crowd away. He won the hundred grand. He was going to build a shop. Um, I mean, just within a month or two after that COVID came slamming down and he recognized a different opportunity. He didn't build a shop. He increased his fleet. And, uh, if I remember right, he did three, eight last year. And so, uh, and has hired some PEP brothers. So he's creating jobs. Um, he's infusing cash into our communities where he used to be a drain on our tax base. He's not a contributor. Let me ask you about your biggest disappointment that surprised you and what went wrong. You know, we have business plan competitions on the inside, basically shark tank for prisoners. And we bring in uh, successful businessmen and women and they have so much fun in doing that. And, and it strikes me that uh, some of our most uh, skilled, best speaking, uh, event winning uh, uh, contestants uh, struggle the most. And one guy got out and there were so many people that were excited about his business plan. They wanted to invest in him. We discourage equity investments. We would rather do debt financing. Um, but there's an extra layer of insulation, I think, and protection for everybody. But he got out. A lot of people were super excited about him. Uh, he was staying in our transitional house here in, in Dallas. And I got wind that he was drinking. And that's we've got zero tolerance for that. So... And, you know, I talked to him about it, and, of course, he denied it and then very quickly moved out of the transitional house. Uh, but he moved in with an executive, uh, not one of ours, an executive for a company here in Dallas. Uh, he had apparently kind of pulled the, uh, I don't know, the wool over a lady's eyes and moved in with her, uh, was in a relationship, and started using harder drugs, smoking crack. So she called me and said, I just want you to know that um, I've, I've kicked Robert out and he's smoking crack. And I said, well, thank you. Thank you for the information. I'm not completely surprised. But um, if you talk to him, tell him to come and talk to me. All right. About a week later, she sent me a picture on her phone. He, he, was, he was robbing banks here in town. And they had a picture of him handing a note to the teller. And so uh, I, I just shook my head and I told her, I said, you know, if you talk to him, 
please tell him to give himself up before somebody gets hurt. And I'm happy to help with that. So a few days later, I was actually at the Dallas Country Club for an event, and she texted me, and she said, Robert's ready to give himself up, but he'll only do that with you. He's afraid the police are going to shoot him. I said, where's he at? And so she gave me an address in, in South Dallas. I drove down there, and it was a very busy intersection. As I was pulling into the address, it was a Walgreens, and I realized he's not here. He's somewhere around here watching me to see who's with me. And I just intuitively knew that. Sure. So he wasn't there. He wasn't at any of the places. On the way there, I'd, I'd contact the detective in the case, and I said, hey, Robert wants to give himself up, and I'm going to get him, and where can I bring him to you? And he said, where's he at? And I said, I, I don't know yet. Let me get him, and, and I'll and I'll bring him to you. Uh, so after I, I looked for Robert for a little bit, um, I was about to leave uh, that area, and I noticed a bunch of cars had pulled into a gas station. There was a guy on the ground, a bunch of people standing around. So I pulled in. It was about six plainclothes cops who had already apprehended Robert, had him on the ground in plastic handcuffs. Apparently, they had tracked me from our phone call. I, that's my only assumption. And, uh, and as I pulled up, there was this huge detective uh, uh, that was standing over Robert. And I forget his name now, but I said, you detective in the case? He goes, yeah, are you Brian? I said, yes, sir. And he goes, man, thank you so much, um, you know, for, for helping us apprehend him. I'm like, I didn't feel like I did much, but yeah, you're welcome. And it's funny. They said, hey, we need to move our cars. Will you watch him? And I said, well, um, do I get a gun and a badge? <laughs> and they laughed and they said, no. And I said, yeah, I, I've got you. And it gave me a chance to kind of talk to him. And I said, you know, Robert, I'm glad this is over. You didn't have to go to this level. You know, you've got all the aptitude in the world, but um, you know, sometimes there's disappointments. And I guess Robert's done. Be, he yeah. he earned an 11 year sentence in, in the Fed, so okay. he's, he's probably going to do all right. almost all of that. Brian, we're going to pause for a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. We're talking with Brian Kelly, the CEO of the Prison Entrepreneurship Program in Texas. And Brian, I want to go back to your introduction personally to the prison system. For listeners that know nothing about that world, what was that like the first day when you walked in? Did you have an expectation? Did you know what was coming? The first day that I walked into prison? Yes. I had no idea. I mean, there had been a couple of nights that I'd spent the night in jail over you know, unpaid traffic tickets or maybe a uh, young man being a little too aggressive. And one night, you know, I got in a fight, and a drunken fight and spent the night in jail. But, you know, encountering prison um, was something different. You know, let me go back to my trial, if you don't mind. Sure. Because I remember I was standing in the courtroom here in Dallas and, uh, God, it seemed like everybody was looking at me with hatred and condemnation. And I, was, I didn't even want to breathe because I felt like it was bringing too much attention to me. And uh, as I stood there, um, the judge looked at me over his glasses and he said, Mr. Kelly, a jewelry of your peers has found you guilty of the crime of murder and sentenced you to life in the, same, in the state penitentiary. Do you have anything to say for yourself? 
And as I stood there, I'm, I'm just, my mind's flashing before my eyes, and I'm, I'm thinking back at, you know, my, my upbringing and you know, the struggles that we've had in a broken home. My father left, and uh, the lack of discipline, the lack of uh, a solid masculine influence, and, and, and trying to figure out life, uh, and you know, and struggling with poverty and, and uh, the, the various things that contributed. But it all boiled down to my choice, and I made a horrible choice, and I knew I was guilty. Although I lied at trial, I knew I was guilty, and I had nothing to say. It was like my voice had been taken away, and I, had, I, I didn't say a word. I just stood there trembling, and I knew everything I had come to trust for life, sex, drugs, rock and roll, partying, whatever, was being stripped away. And... Uh, I knew it was over. I knew the jig was up. And so um, I ended up doing about three or four months in the county jail, which was horrible at the time. We had 50 men in a tank made for 22, fighting like crazy, um, just packed in like sardines. And it's interesting, uh, an old school veteran of the judicial system uh, came in one day and he saw just how chaotic it, it was. And he said, what if we instituted Friday night call out? And I think everybody on the tank said, what are you talking about? He said, on Friday night, anybody can fight whoever they want to for any reason. But during the week, let's keep it cool. And we instituted that, and it was amazing how it caused a calmness during the week. And if you had an issue with somebody, you would say, hey, I'm going to look at you on Friday. And so we had entertainment, and we had uh, exercise, or Friday night fights. And, uh, and so I, that was my introduction my first few months of what my life sentence, what my life was going to look like. And I thought, you know, this is bizarre. Um, when I went down to the prison system, I went to the BDO unit that at that time was uh, rivaled one of the largest um, prisons in Texas. It was 3,500 inmates. The demographic was 18 to 21. At 26, they called me old school. And uh, uh, a lot of angst, a lot of energy, a lot of fighting going on there, too. I, I just, I, the things that I encountered are the racial division, fighting over benches, fighting over uh, TV shows, fighting over who could fight who. It, it was just, I don't know, it was, it's a perverse caricature of manhood where you demand respect through violence and threats. And it's just miserable. And I was in a funk. I was in a depression. I, I hated life. I knew I'd made the choices and I'm earning, um, you know, uh, uh, what I, uh, the choices I've made. And uh, I, I was hopeless. I was completely hopeless. I was in that cloud of hopeless, like uh, helplessness, like everybody else. And I didn't know the way out. So how much was it like the movie Shawshank Redemption where you're always looking over your shoulder? It, it's like that. Uh, there are safe zones, there are unsafe zones, um, many more unsafe zones. And uh, it's interesting in Texas prisons when you, uh, when you first go in. And, and I was counseled by a veteran uh, of prisons in the county jail. Uh, I asked him, what's it going to be like for me when I go down there? He said, well, first of all, first thing you need to do is when you hit your unit and they're going to give you your mattress, your pillow, all your stuff, you, um, you're going to go to your block. They're going to open up your cell. You go put your stuff up and you come back out and you go to the day room. Do not stay in your cell. And I said, why not? He said, let me tell you. 
You go back down to the day room, you go to the back wall of the day room, you turn around and get your back against the wall, and you're going to get approached by somebody. They call it the check game. Everybody there wants to know if you'll fight for yourself. The whole day room is watching. And you're typically going to get approached by somebody of a different race, and you fight your ass off. He said, and you will build a reputation. Everybody will know that you'll fight for yourself. And, uh, and if you don't do that, Brian, your life sentence is going to be hard to deal with. So go down there. Your first impression to them is going to be huge. So I, I used to hear of it as hogging, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to fight or everybody's going to take everything mm-hmm. you've got. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. True. And, and where are the guards during all of this? I, they're around, but I mean, the inmates are amazingly adept at recognizing opportunities when, you know, the guards go down the, the cell to go, you know, get somebody out. And, and there's windows of opportunities. And so uh, it, it's amazing how, how good they are at doing that. So, And so if an, uh, an inmate gets into your program, does that go away? Do they, are they in kind of a free zone then? And that... They have a, they're a different respect for them. We throw the typical prison culture on its head. You know, uh, um, for most of the prisons uh, across the state, snitches um, uh, are um, get stitches. Right. Yes. And so you don't tell. You mind your own business. You don't tell on other people. If you see something, you shut up about it. You let it go. Um, we don't do that. We institute a program of accountability where we are encouraging our guys to be your brother's keeper and pull people to a higher level of, of behaviors, thinking. Uh, and, and so it, that takes a bit. Uh, we've got to break down uh, the, the other or kind of counterculture. Uh, but we're also uh, racially inclusive meaning we're bringing the races together where um, in most of the prisons you sit according to your races. Yes. Uh, White guys sit with white guys, black guys sit with black guys and you don't cross those boundaries of those big problems. Uh, We, and we put everybody together and by the end of our program, in just a few months, we're crying together. We're laughing together. We're dancing together. We're doing, we're having life together. You know, when I was doing the reporting on the serial killer, Kenneth McDuff, who was a big man, Big, they would have to use leg shackles on his wrist. His hands were so big. But I, I interviewed his cellmate from Maximum Security, and I, you know, said, "How bad was he?" He said, "Well, you know, in all of his years in prison, he didn't have one single tattoo. He was his own gang. Uh, he was a gang of one." And then I, I talked for the television show. I went back and talked to some guard that knew him on on death row and all. And they said that he would sit alone in the rec yard and at places, and no one came around and no one bothered him. From the perspective of the inmate culture, what was that? What was what was that reflective of? You know, I'll go back to the check game. What we yeah. called it. You know, uh, once your reputation is established in prison, not, not to be messed with. Uh, you know, everybody respects that. They want to know what the pecking order is. And if you are somebody that won't fight for yourself, everybody knows it. And if you're somebody who will defend yourself at all costs, everybody knows it too. So everybody knows who you can mess with and who you can't. Yeah. You know, I also met 
in the win unit, stamping out license plates. What a, what an irony. The, the leader of the biggest chop shop gang and chop shops for our listeners is where they're, it's a car theft ring and they break down the parts and the parts are worth more than the cars themselves. But this was an enormous operation. It was like he was running a series of McDonald's restaurants and it, struck me and I talked to him it's like what, what an irony but you know you could have been running a, a, a chain of car dealerships what the heck happened you know I, I think there are uh, a lot there's a lot of business acumen you know from a street level experience yes. that has got to be transformed into something positive too and that's why we start out with character assessment development is it though is it they take think it's the easier route yeah, I, but for most of the guys in prison, I think uh, yeah they've come from um, from a sense of poverty of, of 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 not having enough, and so there's a selfishness of I need to get what I need to get for me in a world that scares me to death, and so there there's something we're trying to overcome in prison entrepreneurship program is that hey let's don't come at life from a position of scarcity. You've got what it takes. You're going to be okay. You're in a community now. We're going to take care of each other. Let's accentuate the positives. Let's don't panic and think you need to take from others to get what you think you need. So give me your perspective of this. So for instance, there's increasing crime rate in Dallas, but there are lots of burglaries. People are coming home and they're finding their homes plundered and there is this sense of violation, and they are angry. Uh, they're afraid to come back to the house, and they want to hang them from the nearest tree. What do you, What do you say to them? You know, uh, eye for an eye. Yes, it is us, leaves us all blind. Eye for an eye leaves us all blind. And and it's just not a uh, viable solution. I think they're. I'm not advocating that we don't have consequences for crime. I, not at all. I completely agree that we all need to own what we've done in the past, and that's what we instill in our men, and that's that's what I've instilled in my own life is I, I need to own what I've done in the past. I was given a life sentence for murder, and I take that seriously. I, I want to give my life in a demonstration that I can't balance the yeah. scales for what I've done, but my life should demonstrate that I'm trying. And I want to see that in all the rest of our guys too, but – um, you know, uh, strictly punitive measures will not fix this problem. Um, from your experience, it, how do we deal with the, well, I'd call them the psychopaths, the stranger on stranger violence, stranger on stranger murders that, and there's a whole, there's a history. Um, I mean, you met them. How do we how do we deal with that? You know, there are so many just violent and vile predators in prison trying to prey on the weak, and and I've seen a bunch of them, and quite frankly, they scare me to death. There is no conscience, and I and I, I don't know how to break through those worst cases. I've tried in some cases, um, and and so I think everybody is redeemable, but not everybody's ready. And I don't know how to get those worst cases ready. And, and that's, quite frankly, not who we deal with. I'm looking sure. for people who are ready to turn their lives around. They just don't know how. Um, it's difficult. There are people that we need to have locked up. Uh, defunding 
criminal justice, defunding police is, is certainly not going to be their answer because uh, there's people that we need to protect the rest of society from. But then I do wonder if for those others, if we're too extreme. I, that's above my pay grade. Yeah. That's a hard, hard question. I'm, I'm going to turn that over to the Lord. What do you want the our listeners to, in conclusion here to really know about this program and uh, and why they might want to financially support it? You know, I've seen tremendous transformations. Like I said, over 600 businesses started by ex-felons. We're are looking to 2X that over just the next few years. Uh, as we grow and expand and look for replication in other states. I've got about a dozen states right now that would take us tomorrow if we're ready, and we're almost there. We're working on that. I'm building what I intend to be the nation's leading second-chance incubator and accelerator to really uh, increase the pipeline of second-chance uh, business owners. Um, you know, it's to my point earlier, it's fiscally responsible for us to take somebody who's been a perpetual drain on the tax base and turn them into a real producer, a job creator, a leader in their family and community. That's what we do. We bring in successful businessmen and women into prison and as mentors and guides, uh, coaches uh, to this population uh, that makes a tremendous difference in our society. I've shared with many uh, successful businessmen and say, hey, you know, you can be a mentor to a guy, to a kid that's going to business school, to going to Harvard. And you've done a good thing. Don't stop doing that. But you're, if, when you do that with us, you're taking somebody who has been in that cycle of poverty and crime and turning them into a positive force in our community. And you've made a huge difference. And so uh, there's ways to volunteer with PP, to get involved, to support, to, to donate. But I, I would say uh, you know, I've got my business card is a get into jail free card. And I take um, all kinds of people into prison to see what's going on and help foster change in these men. And and instead of sitting at home and watching the news, lamenting at the state of the deterioration of our country, getting involved, helping take somebody who would be on the nightly news and turning them into um, somebody who is a positive impactor in our community is a huge difference maker. Well, Brian, that's the last word. And as I said back at the beginning, I've, I've got f friends that are business executives involved in your program, and they tell me it's they really see a difference, and it's the kind of differences that uh, that really are needed from my years inside the prison system. So thank you, and for our listeners, I'm going to put in the show notes links to how you can uh, get involved and help. That's it for this week's edition of True Crime Reporter. Thank you so much, Robert. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.